Hello, everyone. I'm David Minot, the host from Planetary Makeover. And on this episode, we have a special guest, Ira Palmer, who's been on before, but he wasn't here in person. Ira's a world traveler who hails from North Carolina, where he served in state government in numerous agencies and performed a long list of volunteer activities, including on the board of the United Way of Carolina and president of the Carabas County chapter of the NAACP, amongst countless other volunteer activities. Education-wise, he holds a master's degree in educational guidance and counseling and has also participated in a year-long study at Yale University. In addition to all that, Ira has two books poised for publication. Number one, for truth seekers, a peek into Super Mundane. Super Mundane is a book that we'll be talking about later. And the second book, Evolution of Humanity Unveiled, a primer. I don't know about you, but I think I'm going to need to read those two books. In addition to all that, Ira is also an avid and longtime student of the Ageless Wisdom Teaching and hosts a Transmission Meditation Group. And we'll talk a little bit more before we begin about the Ageless Wisdom Teaching and Transmission Meditation. Welcome, Ira. Thank you, David. Good to be with you. We're, we're thrilled to have you back. So before we start... Let me just clear up a couple of things for the audience who may not be familiar with all the esoteric studies that, that you are. And one of those I mentioned was the Ageless Wisdom Teaching, which you will hear Ira refer to. It's an enormous amount of body, um, body of work and knowledge that is said to go back some 100,000 years and underlies what today is much of our civilization, religion, philosophy, art, you name it. We'll also be talking about a group of enlightened human beings known as the Masters of Wisdom. And this is not an exclusive club. The Masters of Wisdom are perfected human beings, which is really just you and I, hundreds or thousands of years from now. Everyone will get there. And the leader of the Masters of Wisdom, the world teacher Maitreya, and Maitreya's coming, as the world teacher, was predicted by all the major world religions, but he himself is a spiritual teacher, not necessarily a religious teacher, per se, because he's here for everyone, religious and non-religious alike. And this ageless wisdom teaching that I might reference to, that Ira will help enlighten us about, was written about in the, well, relatively modern era, starting in 1875, by several authors. One that Ira will tell us about is Helena Rorick and the incredible tome she wrote entitled, entitled Super Mundane. Now, Ira, since you're so much better versed in this than I, I'm wondering if you could let us know what prompted you to write a book based on super mundane, which is part of the Agni Yoga teaching, which is something you could explain to the audience as well, um, given by one of the masters of wisdom, who I'll let you reveal. So tell us more about this. 
Well, the time that I read the book, Super Mundane, uh, COVID was flourishing. Uh, millions of people were dying around the globe. And many felt like they were cheated out of an opportunity to meet with a very loved uh, person in their family, relatives, uh, sometimes just an acquaintance. Uh, so as I was reading this book, I felt like that is a book that would give uh, a level of comfort to those who were going through COVID. And as you know, uh, most nations were not cooperating very much in finding a solution and mediating con uh, uh, viruses and and. Uh, uh, they really were not working together as a unit and cooperating. So this book, it takes a lot of the fear out of the transition or death, as we call it, and shows a different light upon that process of transition into the invisible, etheric, subtle world. And as a matter of fact, once you learn what's involved in that process, you might want to die early <laughs> because <laughs> it's it's more beautiful than the terrestrial uh, nuts and boats world that we live in. And people who transition are surprised that they're waiting on something terrible to happen, some pain. And before you know it, they're out of their bodies. The soul cuts the cord to the uh, heart chakra on the right-hand side, and then the brain, and then you pass out through the crown chakra at the top of the head. You see your relatives crying their hearts out, and you want to say to them, I'm fine. <laughs> I feel the best I've felt in, in years but they can't see you, they can't hear you because you no longer have a voice voice box, you no longer have the vocal cord, but you're feeling invulnerable because you're still alive. So uh, they answer a lot of questions in that book, Super Mundane, how to avoid the loss of consciousness and the memory of many things doing the protracted sleep that most of us experience and how to avoid that, how to measure the presence of uh, psychic energy, which is really fire. And as you know, fire is dangerous, but at the same time, it's the highest form of consciousness. Agni is about fire. And as you look around the galaxy, especially with uh, telescopes that are stationed in space, what do you see? You see fire. So it unlocks a lot of keys to what this world is like, how you navigate that world, it's like being on a vacation, actually, and you see colors 
that you could never see in the physical world. And if you want a, a little bit of an expert, you have to go to your your five-year-old or your seven-year-old because they can tell you what it's like and how beautiful it is. So that's what the book is about. It's about the subtle world, the uh, uh, wonderful things that happen in that world, how you how you uh, avoid some problems like the dark forces, what the masters do in that world, their abodes, their their vehicles that they use to uh, travel, sometimes to solar systems outside of this solar system and what they've seen on their visits there. So it's a, it's a, like opening the door to a new set of knowledge. And Ira, you mentioned the the asking the the children, five year olds, seven year olds, even younger. And what is it they know that we've forgotten? <laughs> well, uh, all kids actually can see from the time they're born to sometimes seven years old, sometimes later they can see uh, gnomes, goblins, sprites, and the kids say, Mommy, I want to play with Caleb a little longer. But the mother says, well, honey, you got, you got to come in and do your homework. But Mom, we're just having so much fun. And the parents uh, sooner or later gets a little annoyed with the excuses and they sometimes say to them, uh, honey, that's just your imagination. They're not really real. And that's a crushing blow to the child because he can see something that you can't. But every indication from you is that the child is lying when the child is not. He's able to see something because his etheric vision is still functional. And so the child can see these playmates that are small and that communicate telepathically mind to mind. So the child has a lot of fun with their playmates that we unfortunately can't see. Mm -hmm. And then the children, they also have an innate uh, talent that they've been given by God. And mothers usually know what this talent is. They observe the child, and within a short period of time, the the mother is able to identify where their skill set lies. So there's a lot that we can learn from the kids if they want to share it with us. And when they do share, it's so important that the parents listen with an intent ear. And even if they can't see the gnomes, goblins, sprites, salamanders, undines, that they at least uh, go along with the program and say, honey, why don't you invite Caleb Caleb to come in and help you do your homework? (laughs) So there's a lot we can learn from children. Uh, We should tell them that they live in actually three worlds. 
the dense physical world, the uh, the emotional world in which you experience fears, uh, joys, uh, desires, longings. And then there's the mental world, the world of the mind. And that comes in three categories. There's the brain, which is the little computer that helps us to navigate life from day to day. And there's also the heart that uh, experiences our fears, our longings, our desires. I want a new car. I want a better job. I want new clothes. <laughs> and all of us experience that. But the, t the category that is of monumental interest to us is the... Uh, the wisdom, the seat of wisdom, the soul. And the soul comes from a previous solar system. So in a strange way, we're actually two beings in one. The part of us, the personality that is threefold, physical, emotional, mental, that came out of the uh, animal kingdom. You know that from... Charles Darwin, you learned that in high school. But there's also uh, the soul that comes from a previous solar system. And Maitreya has said that the soul is a mini God within you. Mm. So we're a lot older than we think. <laughs> Absolutely. 18.5 million years that we've been on the planet. Six million in Lemuria and uh, 12.5 million years in Atlantis. And so, could you could you say a little bit about Lemuria and Atlantis for some of our listeners who may not be familiar? Okay. The uh, Lemurian continent was out in the Pacific. And Australia, New Zealand, Easter Island, Hawaii... And the Philippines, according to a master from Venus, were mountainous areas of Lemuria. We were in animal bodies, <laughs> animal-like bodies during that early period, and there was immense struggle just to make it from day to day. And if you looked at Jurassic Park, you will recall that there were all types of large creatures, some that actually could fly, and they decimated early man, uh, entire communities. Of so course, we actually intersected with the dinosaurs for a little while. That's right. And um, because at that early period, we were mixing with the animals uh, we had uh, cyclops, we had we produced giants, and this was contrary to the plan. So we had to learn to deal with the fruits of of the earth in a different way. Later, uh, there was a uh, volcanic activity in Lemuria 
that destroyed much of the of the uh, continent. Hmm. And so we took the precious but little gains that we had in our evolution and took that with us. Although we did, did get some help from this, the uh, solar logos, and that's the being uh, who's in charge of our solar system. Mm. He made provisions for uh, people from uh, a system outside of our solar system to come to Lemuria to show us the way forward. It lasted for uh, 4,000 years during a golden age of that uh, continent and humanity that was developing. They were about five foot three inches tall, brown skin, and they loved activity. They did not know the concept of inequality. They helped one another. Mm. Uh, they were still depicted as being half human and half fish, which meant that they had command of these of the soil as well as the, the the seas and the oceans. They love helping one another, and for a little while, maybe a couple of thousand years, they showed us the way forward. But people in what is now Greece and Italy migrated into that land and mixed with them. And during that time, uh, the people from Greece and Rome introduced the concept of inequality. Ah, now, are we still in the Lemurian age, Ira, or have we moved into the Atlantean era yet? We're still in the six million years of Lemuria. Ah, okay. We, uh, we spent 12.5 million years in Atlantis. And when I went to China, I asked them, uh, one scholar, if they were related to the Native American. They said, yes. Mm. Learned that in school. And I said, well, what about the Eskimo? Because Ben had indicated that they are also related to the Eskimo. Oh, and Ira, we just want to say briefly, um, Ira was referring to Benjamin Krem, an author, artist, and esotericist, who in a more modern era, 70s, 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, also taught humanity about the ageless wisdom teaching in his many, his some 17 books. Um, sorry to interrupt, Ira, go ahead. Okay, so um, Atlantis was a large continent, and uh, we have the uh, Chinese, the Koreans, the Japanese, the Vietnamese, uh, the Native American Indian, and as according to Benjamin Cram, also the Eskimos. So they that was a, a period of struggle, but it was also a period of enlightenment because the masters some 98,000 years ago uh, worked with humanity. And going back 
even earlier than that, they showed us tremendous things. Uh, they talked about a religion that was more of a spiritual belief system that that helped humanity to navigate the way forward. So the Atlanteans, which was the home of the Mongolian uh, fourth root race, it's like a tree with seven limbs, and those were the, the cultures, the groups of peoples and ethnic groups that made up that tree. Mm. Oh, and Ira, if you could pause for just a moment, I want to apologize to the audience for dropping out and having an unstable internet connection, but I'm back. Go ahead, Ira. Okay. So uh, a lot of gifts were given to humanity during that, that period, and uh, we prospered, uh, but there was little sharing going on. The most affluent people uh, took most of the gifts that were given to them from the spiritual hierarchy of planet Earth and did not share it with the lay people, the peasants, hmm. the people who were struggling to make it. So those were the two periods. Um, and I want to say something about the, uh, the kids and uh, how they register uh, for life on planet Earth to make the best of the opportunities. When I was in Japan, I talked to a friend of ours, Tamayuki, who said that teachers who are especially gifted and charismatic made as much as college professors <laughs> in the United States. And he had done his uh, doctoral training in the United States. And he said, these teachers make as much as, in 1992, $70,000. I wow. said, that's remarkable. I said, that's a lot of money. And he said, well, these teachers are especially gifted, and they, they enter the child's life at a time that they can most benefit from having a charismatic teacher that gets them excited about learning and that early learning can last a lifetime. And I recall agreeing with him. I told him that um, what I've learned from our developmental studies, a child has a window of opportunity. And if a charismatic, talented teacher comes in with special face, that shows a smile or a frown and talks about the moods that you go through in life and how to get out of that mood and change your mood, like changing the station on a TV or radio. And uh, we had some great discussions about the prospects for that to occur. The mm -hmm. message talked about the need uh, for siblings to help one another, to tutor one, one another, to build a bond. And uh, they also talk about the importance of music. Mm -hmm. Music is, it kind of is the pathway to better comprehension of 
math, and science. But it's in some schools is being eroded, is being uh, replaced by more academic pursuits when actually it aids our comprehension of science and math. So once you learn the rhythms and the function of Mozart and the music, when you go through an Ivy League school and some other schools as well, they they play classical music when you enter the uh, commons for lunch and, and dinner. And uh, they just notice that your comprehension improves. <laughs> and it goes in an opposite direction when you play rock music. So. <laughs> our, our, do- our family dog used to leave the room when we played hard rock. Um, so, you, Sally, you, you've anticipated my next question was, what are the some of the more compelling uses we can make uh, of the power of thought using some of these principles in super mundane that you study um, so um, fastidiously, which sounds like a lot of educators and a lot of students need to be exposed to super mundane, too. So. Um, what are some of the more compelling uses of the power of thought that super mundane gives us, Ira? Okay. Um, one of the most uh, amusing and uh, one that Benjamin Krim also emulated is the work of Alexandra David Neal. She's from France and Belgium, and she wanted very much to visit uh, Tibet. She did change her appearance, and she had an oval face, somewhat like the Tibetan people. And she met with the 13th Dalai Lama, who admired her her courage and a perseverance. And he advised her to learn the Tibetan language. She did that in pretty fast order and was able to communicate and uh, penetrate some of the secret uh, teachings, especially the spiritual teachings in Tibet. She was able to learn how to use Tumo, which was uh, involved the pairing of intense concentration with Uh, special breathing techniques that warm the body. So if it gets very cold in Tibet in the wintertime, and let's say you lost your transportation, you could use Tumo to create heat in the body, and you could survive freezing temperatures. Amazing. She also learned uh, how to produce a, a... uh, phantom person, not a person with a soul, but what is called a tulpa. And this was a, uh, she had in her mind uh, Robin Hood and the monk in that in that movie. So she was focusing on producing something like that, a friar tuck from that 
Robin Hood movie, and she succeeded. She had this jolly uh, monk that followed her around, and at some point he became a very mischievous and uh, oops, I, oh, <laughs> entity. Uh, throwing over tables and she had to figure out how could she reabsorb him into her mind. So she had to learn how to do that. She learned the, the task of uh, reabsorbing her, this monk, into her mind. And of course, Benjamin Krim said he had some success with Tumo, uh, less so with the Tulpa. So when Benjamin Krim said, uh, people thought it was hyperbole, but when he said, we are thoughts in the mind of God, it was not. If this lady who was about 1.7 out of a scale of a one to five could do it, then God could certainly do it. Oh, and, and Ira, I just wanted to interrupt from when you talk about the scale of one to five, we might want to explain that to some of our viewers. Um, these are stages of spiritual development that human beings go through. And admittedly, it's an artificial system, but in those five steps, first step, you, you get control over the appetites of the body. Second step, believe, and correct me, Ira, if I'm wrong, Feel free to jump in. It's when you get control um, of the mental body. And in the third initiation, that's when, believe that's the, the, the... The second is the emotional vehicle. Oh, that's right. The baptism in the River Jordan. This is and, why we need you to jump in. <laughs> and so, okay. So uh, the third is the transfiguration, uh, the burning bush. The burning bush represents fire, and the fire represents the mind faculty. So uh, then there's the fourth, which is the crucifixion, what is known in the East as the renunciation, giving up the intellect, the family, even life itself, is, if necessary, in, in order to follow the course of the soul. But not so, a literal crucifixion. We don't want to scare our view, our listeners. Uh, well, uh, Jesus did experience the crucifixion. Uh, they do tell us that he was anesthetized. So he did not experience the brutal pain of the crucifixion. Uh, but the people in the East, they call it the renunciation. That means giving up the personality in order to follow the course of of the soul and the course of the soul will involve in many instances sacrifice sometimes painful sacrifice in order to achieve your birthright your destiny which is to become a master eventually mm -hmm. a god so those are the four that they and the resurrection means that you have taken what was an animal man, and spiritualized him. 
That means you, the soul has educated this, this lowly animal man and raised him to contemporary man. On up the, the uh, Jacob's ladder, all the way up to eventually becoming a, a mini god, and Maitreya teaches that. He oh, tells of wisdom, right? That's right. That that the potential is there. You have to develop it. And uh, Maitreya says, "I come to teach you two things." I come to to show you that the path to God is simple indeed. Your divine spark will become manifest through me. He says, let me do this work for you, my, my friends. Let me take you into your divine heritage. I shall show you wonders of which you cannot dream. I shall release from your eyes, the blindfold of ignorance. I shall drive from this earth forever the curse of hatred, the sin of separation. Say yea to my coming and be involved mm. in the blessing of my so love. So this sounds, Ira, like how some of the members of the spiritual hierarchy or the, the masters of wisdom um, make use of the power of thought. Yes, exactly. And so, but they're telling us that we have that within ourselves. And every thought that you put out there in cosmos, someone hears it. Most of our thoughts are inconsequential. They have little that is of use to some of our advanced planets, the sacred planets, let alone the planets outside of our solar system. So that's the reason the masters say, do not interrupt someone when they're talking because then the thought process that you were going through is interrupted. It becomes fragmented. It becomes trash or litter. Now, our science knows this, and they see it in the cosmos, and they say that our planet is suffering uh, greatly because we have polluted our streams, the earth itself, the air, and especially since we have developed nuclear weapons, those things cannot be stored. The waste from nuclear weapons cannot be stored because it seeps out on invisible etheric levels. So we have to manage our thoughts in a better way and uh, learn from just 15 minutes uh, a day how to form a complete thought. It helps if the thoughts are directed toward the common good. And uh, but most of us think thoughts of, I want a better job. I need a new car and these kinds of things. And our emotional attachments, those become an ensnarlment 
that's very hard to get rid of. So the planet is suffering and COVID is not an accident. It comes from the damage we do to Mother Earth. And we see it in the choking sensation that we have with COVID. How clear can it be that we need to find a different way forward? We need to take care of Mother Earth and every mother, uh, man, woman, child on the planet needs to be uh, enlisted in helping to establish equilibrium, balance, and clean up the mess we've created. The Space Brothers sounds, have... Oh, well, sounds I, I just wanted to say again, before, before my internet freezes again, um, <laughs> I wanted to to remind us, and I neglected to mention that to our wonderful producer there, Thomas, that we wanted to take some questions in the last 20 minutes or so, and so that people will be free to call in and could pose questions to Ira, and perhaps it would spark some new conversations. And But while we're waiting for that, Ira, um, one thing I forgot to mention was that event where the world teacher Maitreya will communicate with all of humanity at once. Mm -hmm. And that was known as the Day of Declaration. Well, he will communicate with all of humanity telepathically, as you mentioned telepathy earlier. Everyone will hear them over the age of 14 in their heads, in their own languages. And he will give us a glimpse of our past, the present, and the future, and give humanity the choice, some of the choices you've mentioned, if we're willing to embrace peace, equitable sharing of the world's resources, and of course, abandon war. And something you had brought up before in your discussions with me were, um, how do we prepare our children for this Day of Declaration and the global transformations ahead, which I think you've already started to touch upon. That's right. Uh, children, especially the ones who are 13 and below, uh, they're going to be somewhat confused if parents do not take the initiative of describing what's going on. I can just see the kids now getting on their phone and saying, well, mom was crying and dad act like he was hearing something and the man on TV was not even talking. <laughs> so the kids need to be given uh, some understanding of what this is all about. And uh, there will be some exceptions of the prodigies, you know, these kids who are geniuses and are matured beyond their years they will be able to hear what my Petraea is saying in his telepathic communication with the entire planet above the age of 14. All will hear him in their language. So it facilitates that difficult communication uh, with people with hundreds of different languages. But Maitreya merely has to think of the words he wants to convey to humanity 
about the the need for proper food, adequate shelter, health care, and education as basic rights. Everyone's free will is respected. No one is coerced, but you give according to your heart. And uh, he's already said, America was will not be at the forefront because oh. is a capitalistic nation and we'll see it as a threat. Ah. Oh, I already didn't want to interrupt, but I think you have a guest here. We have a guest who wants to a- ask a question. Okay. <laughs> or who has, yes, it's um, Francis from Berkeley on line two. Go ahead, Francis. Hi, Ira. This has been a fabulous show. And with all the crazy stuff that's coming, I feel very optimistic about Maitreya helping, but um, I want to know what can we do practically with this super mundane idea that energy follows thought. So I'm sure I saw a quote somewhere from Maitreya that said, um, the voice of the people will will topple government. And that sounds kind of scary, but it, it given that I've never seen so much protesting and and I just don't know how do we reach all these protesters who are putting it right on the line. Just in case any of them are listening, really how practically, like one, two, three, how where do you put your attention? How do you create I don't know, I mean we could create a new golden age. How does energy follow thought? Thank you. Uh, Francis, thank you for the question. We have the opportunity through meditation to get in contact with the God within us, which is the soul. Now, the masses are custodians of all the energies entering the planet most of these energies are too high frequency for us to absorb uh, benignly. But doing meditation, a very scientific process is unfolding. And the masters can send energies through our Ashna Center between the eyebrows, and we actually step automatically step that energy down. The masters then use that step-down energy uh, for family being assaulted by uh, gangs, uh, Taliban, ISIS, uh, and they barely have time to get their belongings and flee to a safe haven. Sometimes they are able to go for weeks without food. Where are they getting their sustenance? Where are they getting, how are they staying alive? It is this energy that we step down doing meditation. So you're not only getting in contact with your soul, 
but you're saving lives. And one of the most basic and important things that we do is service. It's how we evolve. Maitreya says he already has the numbers that he's looking for. But he's coming into an atmosphere now in which we are able to kill people in an instant. We perfected the methods of killing one another, yet we've lost the ability to contemplate truth. And one of those truths is the need for sharing of the resources of the planet that rightly belong to everyone. So that is what we do. Uh, Maitreya is going to call upon a council of elders for the United States to help us navigate the way forward. Jimmy Carter was supposed to be a member of that group. But as you know, he appears to be close to going through transition at this time. But Maitreya's uh, suggestion will possibly be a combination of socialism and capitalism. So uh, capitalistic nations need not be fearful that Maitreya is going to offer a Pollyanna-ish uh, view, a socialistic uh, view of, of what we should do with our economies in the world today, because Maitreya says we need two wheels to move a cart. One of those is capitalism, the other is socialism. And so there will be a combination of the two. Right now, it looks like the atmosphere is very toxic. Hmm. Uh, the masters talk about this brown gas that is causing all kinds of problems for the planet. And they have gotten uh, aid from the our space brothers. Uh, these UFOs clean up up to 25% of the toxins in our atmosphere, in our waters, in the land. and uh, But that's the most they can do within the laws of karma. Mm -hmm. so we, we do everything we can to help the masters in their uh, communication of the possibilities that lie ahead. We are awakening at planet Earth a non-sacred planet. And we have to inform as many people that will listen about the possibilities in the future for uh, new devices that heal the body through sound and color therapy, like that of uh, the work of Harry Oldfield in England, uh, Dr. Hulda Clark in Canada, uh, Robert Beck in the United States. These are people who are using sound and color plus the human genome to heal the body at etheric invisible levels that can be photographed. And so 
dramatic progress is being made, uh, we will see a reduction, a reduction of hospitals. We will see uh, the reintroduction of levitation that was used by uh, Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, who could uh, make the furniture in her home rise, levitate. And her brother came to her home and saw all of these strange people, scientists, scholars, uh, interested people who hung on every word she said. But she could also uh, cause flowers to drop from the ceiling, fresh flowers. Her brother said, I'd like to see you do this, make a, a, a heavy thing light and make a light thing heavy. So she chose a very strong Russian person there, a young man, and she said, I will make this chess table so heavy you can't move it. And he laughed and approached the table but that laugh quickly vanished because strain as he as he did till his face turned red, he could not make the table bulge. So she, she was able to demonstrate that even her father, Colonel Hahn, who was a military in the uh, Russian military, he didn't believe she could do the, some of these things she talked about. And when uh, some of his uh, colleagues came to his home and listened to her, they said, this lady is fantastic. Why don't you believe her? And he said, it's all bosh. If I believed her, I have to believe in the devil and undines and spirit, and you'd have to assign me to a insane asylum. So they said, well, why don't you put her to the test? He said, finally put down his cards and went to the adjoining parlor and wrote a sentence down. Helena said, I'm getting, and she uses taps and sounds to spell out a word. And she said, this word I'm getting is so monstrous, I can't believe that it's the word you're looking for. But anyway, the word I'm getting is Zychek. Well, her sister, Judy, I believe was her name, she said, you should have seen the look on her father's face when she said that word. And so he took out of his hip pocket a sentence, and it said, what is my favorite war horse that I rode during the first Turkish campaign? And below was Zaycek. So she was able to do things that no other lady could do. It wasn't magic. It wasn't a mystery. She said, everything I can do, you could do with focus and concentration. 
So she introduced us to the powerful concept, the consequential concept of thought and how you could move energy, so much energy that the table could not budge. That's Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. And she was she was able to do so many things that she was like Jesus. She was a fourth degree initiate. And uh, one person who tried to discredit her, he was in his 20s. His name was Richard Hodgson. And he was actually a member of the uh, British Psychic Society. But he knew that men were very intimidated by this, this powerful woman who knew five languages, including Sinzar, Sanskrit, could play like a concert pianist in Carnegie Hall, could draw like a great master, and she didn't suffer fools gladly. She could get you told very quickly. And the professor at Cornell University, Professor Corbin, uh, emeritus uh, literature professor, said she looked like a Russian bear. She was a big woman. And he couldn't understand how she was using, where she was getting the references from. It appeared that she was getting references from the Vatican. And, and she had no traveling library. Also, the rare book libraries in London, she seemed to be pulling from those. So how could he explain that? Well, his granddaughter... Oh, Ira? Yeah. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but it looks like we have another... We have another... Good. Yes. Um, and we only have a couple minutes left. So it's Mark from Redwood Shores. Greetings, Mark. Um, go ahead and pose your question to Ira. Uh, what's the name of Ira's book, and what and when will it be published? Oh, and do you have a copy of it there? <laughs> <laughs> it's. Uh, I don't have it in front of me right now. It's called "For Truth Seekers." A peek into super mundane, and uh, I've already been handed a proof. The book is will be published very shortly, uh, probably over the next couple of weeks or so. Uh, the second book is uh, "Evolution of Humanity Unveiled: A Primer." It's being held by uh, by uh, Fulton Books, a lo much larger printer. And we're in the final stages of that. Sounds great. Excellent. I, I wrote a mean interrupt, but it looks like we are out of time. Yes. And you're going to have to come back for at least one more show to discuss all this, particularly when the book comes out. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you, Ira, for schooling us. And we look forward to having you again on the show very soon. Thank you. Thank you, David.